Hey, we're back for part two. Hey, if you have not heard part one yet, uh, go ahead and put pause on this. Go back and listen to part one. It'll help give some clarification. But what we want to do, we want to just take a minute and review what we talked about in the last episode. Last episode, we talked about hope and how hope shapes how we view both here and now, but also the end as it pertains to good news. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time looking at, hey, the, the hope of the Christian faith uh, isn't so much in what happens after we die and, and this eternal destination of heaven. The, the hope of the Bible is getting to renewed creation, that God mm-hmm. is going to redeem and restore this world, the very one we live on, the very one that he called and said, this is good. This is what I want. And that's what our hope is in, is our hope is in resurrection, and that's where everything is moving. And so we've kind of redefine the ends of the end, I guess, of, yeah. of what we're moving towards. Um, and this is a really important episode. Check it out. Um, <clears throat> I think it will shape a lot of categories that you have about what Christians hope for. In church and out of church, this is a topic, this <coughs> idea of of the end and the yeah. obsession with the end and how things play out and if there's catastrophe. And so, I mean, like I said in the last episode, all you have to do is turn on Netflix and you'll see options of things like Walking Dead. And you know what's fascinating? I helped somebody with their paper here uh, that attends Cornerstone um, about a year and a half ago. And their topic was how does apocalyptic fiction play into our desensitization of how we handle the earth here and now? Hmm. Wow. And and so I'm talking with her at the cafe. I was like, hey, let's have some fun with this. And so I helped give her resources to how does Christian apocalyptic fiction huh. play into how we are desensitized to handling the world hmm. here and now? And uh, I think that what winds up happening is is if, if our understanding, we're going to make the statement here that the end is about hope. It's a hope-filled vision. I think that some of the visions that we communicate both in and out of the church, whether it's in movies and media or if it's pulpit pounding within our churches, it's not really an image of hope. Yeah, it, it would be hard to find a uh, recent movie about the end that is hopeful. <clears throat> you know, most of our end time apocalyptic movies are that. They're apocalyptic in the sense that they are destructive and things are falling apart. And, you know, 2012, the movie where I think is digitally destroyed. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> so much of our, our conversation about the end is filled with uh, destruction mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, casualties and and war and everything yep. just going to crap you know just that's like the 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 way we think about 
the end and, and so that's how we talk about it and then we're like oh but then at the end it's heaven and everything's great yeah. you know but it's like the lead up to all of that is really really bad yeah um and so I, that's what we want to talk about today is is that the bible like vision that things are going to get really bad and there's going to be wars and uh, destruction and things blowing up and buildings falling over and, you know, all these things. And then, oh, then Jesus comes back and then we go to heaven. You know, like, is that the language of the Bible? And then, you know, we really want to get to how do we get to the end? Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, we can... Uh, talk a lot about the ends, which we did in the last episode. Where are we going? And in this one, we want to say, well, well how do we get there? Mm-hmm. How, are there signs to which, you know, we can know the end is coming? Yep. Um, are there other things that need to happen before, you know, new creation? What are those things that, that are going to take place? And um, <clears throat> there are things that we have in our in our Christian theology because of books and Movies and readings of scripture and that deeply influence the way we think about what needs to happen. And so our question is, are there, are there, are there those things that we think about? Are those actually going to take place? Yeah. Um, are there things that we can look at and point to? And um, what, how do we live into those things? You know, if we're always thinking it's going to be violent and destructive, you know, is there this weird yeah. sense where we're glad when there's destruction and violence you know so yeah, yeah it's it's fascinating when I, when i talk to people oftentimes and that we're talking about you know situations and current world affairs you know it's it's interesting when we talk about like just just the the destruction the depravity and all this stuff normally you know a common you know statement people make well the end is near or this is the end times yeah. but they say it in a way as if they're like excited about it yeah, and i'm yeah, like yeah. what is it about like wars and like tsunamis and earthquakes that like getting behind like violence in the middle east yes. that makes you oh my goodness like why does that make you excited yeah <laughs> you know? oh man our obsession with the middle east there's there's a lot of factors into that but it is so weird. The minute there's something weird happening there and destructive and violent and very often Christians' response is almost like to egg it on. You know, very little of our hope is like, oh, how can we resolve that? And oh, where, where can peace be found? It's like, oh, end times. Yeah, let's, know, let's, like, let's make this happen. Yeah, here we go. Let's bring yeah. it to the final party, you yeah. know? Yeah. Oh, and uh, it's like we're we're trying to move it forward. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is if we're going to understand hope as resurrection and hope as as new heavens, new earth, where the things of destruction and decay and sin and all those things are rooted out and and been put away, then why is it that we get excited about those things? Yeah. Um, I, I would venture to say that many of the things that we think we understand or maybe we've interpreted um, have been us placing those things into the scripture. Yeah. And I don't think if we understand what we talked about from our last episode of hope being the end, I don't think that some of our interpretations that we have placed in that actually are in line with God's vision of a future hope. Yeah. So what we want to do today is we want to look at um, some of the bigger uh, doctrines, I guess, or readings of scripture 
that get used when we talk about the end. Yep. Um, <clears throat> we may be debunking a few, and we may be giving uh, some new light to uh, some interpretations. So let's start with one. a Christian. I still am a Christian. When I first (laughs) became a Christian, (laughs) um, you know, reading left behind books, one of my fears was waking up and my parents being gone, their clothes left there and I was left behind. And it was a genuine fear. Like, am I going to get left behind in the rapture? Yeah. Um, so if you don't know what the rapture is, first off, I would say you're lucky. Um, if, if you don't know, if you do know, um, you know, we're, we're going to talk a lot about it today. But the rapture is this this idea that any moment Jesus is going to uh, take the believers mm-hmm. out of this world and take them to heaven. And there's big debates on timing of it all. and um, But it's a it's a pretty like majorly held doctrine among American Christians. Yeah. Uh, that's important to note because you really won't find it anywhere else. But um, <clears throat> this idea that Jesus is going to like zap his church out of here, rapture us out of here, take us to heaven, and then things are going to go really bad on this earth or things were really bad and he takes us out, whatever timing of it all. But that's the idea. And so the Left Behind books made this really popular mm-hmm. uh I mean, even within the title, Left Behind yep. from the Rapture. That was the idea. I mean, the books start out with, like, uh, planes crashing because the pilot disappears and cars crashing and just all this crazy stuff. And the characters realizing they were left behind because they didn't accept Jesus and then working this all out. But, um, you know, that was always a fear of, like, am I really a believer? Because yeah. I don't want to get left behind in this Rapture. Yeah. Um, you you were telling me before you recorded this about some things you grew up with the rapture that was intense. <laughs> yeah, so they um they would oftentimes use this idea of of the fear of the rapture or the return of Christ in a way of like behavior modification. Like it would be like, would you want to be caught? Would you want to be caught doing that if Jesus were to return right now? And almost as if like uh, you know. Um, He's not with us anyway. <laughs> like it was kind of what it felt like they were getting at. And um, w- one of the things, let me, let me reverse back. This idea of the rapture comes out of kind of a theological construct that we talked about in the last um, the last episode of this idea of, of God put something in motion. Yeah. We screw it up. Then God has to come up with a new plan. Yeah. And it, according <clears throat> to that construct, that construct is what we would we have kind of come to understand as dispensationalism. Yeah. So it's a word. If you want to Google it, you can look it up. The word is dispensationalism. And this is the theological construct that most American evangelicals and fundamentalists currently hold. Not, not all, but most. Yeah. And in this theological construct, what we believe is that from the time that Jesus um, ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, we're in what's called the church age or the dispensation. 
Um, and, and the very next thing, the very next thing that most people who adhere to this are waiting for is the rapture. Yeah. For this being caught up, being taken from earth, God's chosen people who have said yes to him, just all of a sudden disappearing one day. That is in this construct what we are waiting for. Yeah. And David and I can really, we can talk into this without talking down on it because we grew up with that. Yep. Um, we grew up, um, both of us with, you know, we were in different churches and, um, but with the the rapture model with the, this is what we hope for um this is what's next and what's important and so so we can speak into this from our experience it's not uh, talking down to to this and um dispensationalism is it's deeply rooted in the american church um you may not find your pastor or your church explicitly being like we're a dispensational church it's just it's just a part of everything. Um, and so we can really speak into this because this is where we've grown up with and had to, you know, deconstruct, reconstruct with it. And so um, so if you're listening, you know, and, and you have this, uh, this rapture view that's kind of built into your theology, whether it's something you're super adamant about or something that you kind of just you know, took with everything that comes with Christianity, said, okay, that's something they believe. We're, we're going to jump in with it. Um, what we want to do is, as we did in the last episode where we kind of begged the question of, is this found in the scriptures? Is going to heaven after you die the most important thing in the scriptures? And we walked that through and gave an answer of, no, it's not. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's new creation. So what we want to do with, with this one, because the rapture is so, like, integrated into American Christianity. Um, we want to observe the, the scriptures that are used for it mm-hmm. and kind of reframe them. Um because uh, there can be, as we'll kind of discuss in a little bit, there can be some dangers to the rapture um, theology, uh, especially trying to combine that with new creation um, and the things that it can do in our practical life right now. Um, so let's see. There's two big passages on this. Um, so the first one we'll go to is Matthew 24. Um so if you're not driving, <laughs> go to Matthew 24. I'm going to have David speaking to this one, and then um, we'll go into the next big scripture after that. Awesome. So yeah, Matthew 24, what we need to realize, or there's a couple things that, that we need to realize before we just kind of cherry pick and, and pull out these like random verses. Um, we need to understand what the Jewish people understood was the end. For them, man, the temple and Jerusalem was the holy place. The temple were, was where worship was been, what was uh, kind of taken place and played out to their God who delivered them. Also, Jerusalem is the holy place not only of King David, but it is the place that God and the prophets promised where the Messiah would set up his reign and rule that would last forever. So Jerusalem and the temple is this place. And Jesus' whole ministry is leading up to this point where he comes in to Jerusalem and they're expecting him to overthrow the powers and set up his rule and reign once and for all. To these people, 
one of the signs of the end or one of the one of the worst possible things that could happen is that the temple would be destroyed. Let me say that again. The worst possible thing that could happen to some of 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 the Jewish people would be that the temple would be destroyed. And if you look at Matthew 24, it's a start of that conversation. It actually starts by by them Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples. And 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 he he says this thing and we could come back to this. He says, "Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another." Everyone will be thrown down. So he's talking about the temple and he's talking about that place in Jerusalem, which to them would be like the end of their religious way of doing things. Then as he continues on, he gets in this weird conversation. And I don't want to read the whole thing, but what we need to understand is that to the Jewish people, what they understood for judgment, the part of their scriptures um, have a conversation around judgment that that they tend to uplift um, Noah. So the, the flood that happened was God's judgment on the earth. And we are going to see as we look at both of these passages, um, Matthew 24 and and uh, Luke 17, we'll, we'll look here in a minute, that they point to Noah. They talk about the flood. And it, it ties that into this idea of judgment. And so what we need to understand is that when we <coughs> approach this text that many of us use as a rapture text, it's actually talking, first of all, about the destruction of the temple and it's tying it into judgment. It's not. Um, it's not beginning a conversation around this idea of like, oh, just people will disappear one yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. Um, with yeah, with the Matthew passage, um, you know, it's it's paralleled in a couple other ones, um, and it's it's so important to to understand the context of it. It would be so weird for Jesus to all, all of a sudden be talking with his Jewish disciples about this rapture of the church. And it just does not fit into the context of it all. Um, I think, are we ready to jump into first Thessalonians? Four? Yeah, real quick. I want to get, I want to get to the point that, that, that there is this, that, and we see it in 24, um, chapter 24, this, you know, some will be doing this and then some will be taken. Some will be doing this and some will be taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some will be doing this and some will be taken. And if you cross-reference it over to Luke 17, it says, where will they be taken, Lord? Yeah. And what does he say? Uh, where, is it, what is it? Where the, where the uh, birds yes. gather. Well, how, how do they know? Uh, or what, what's uh, the implication? He says this, sorry. He says, where there is a dead body, mm-hmm. there the vultures will gather. That's where the people who are taken go. Um, and that doesn't sound like a great place to be. So... Let me talk a little bit about that. With mass, like, slaughterings, mass slaughterings, the way in which they would find the bodies is they would look to see where the birds would gather. Yeah. So what this is saying, it's tying the destruction of the temple Mm -hmm. with judgment, saying to Noah, 
And then it's actually saying, hey, it's not a good thing to be taken because you're going to be put to death. Yeah. Yeah, it's the whole – and then if you compare it to the story of Noah, um, which Jesus does, is you think about the story of Noah and and who are the ones who are taken away in that story and who are the ones who are left behind? Well, the ones who are taken away are those who are caught up in the judgment of the flood. Mm -hmm. And the ones who are left behind, if you will, is Noah and his family. Yep. Uh, and so it's it's a complete flip of the way we read it. Usually the the rapture reading of it is you don't want to be left behind. Yep. But in this reading of it, you do want to be the one yep. left behind because the ones who are taken are taken to the judgment. And, and, and then when the disciples ask, where are they taken, Lord? His response is... Is not great, you know. It's it's yeah. not heaven. It's it's destruction and judgment. Um, it just it completely flips the way that we often read it. So you do want to be left behind, essentially, in this reading of Matthew and Luke. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to encourage anybody, if you're listening right now, to do is read scripture in bigger portions. Yeah, oh for sure. Well, we have a we have a tendency to and and I I, I understand systematic theology. A systematic theology, if you're not kind of sure how it plays out you you come up with a term here's the term so rapture and then there's a statement that defines that term and then there's just a bunch of these like yeah. one or two verse you know deals and quotations that are to back up that term well systematic theology is great because there's a reason why that term was created and people yeah. worked through it and it had to do with a wrestling of a specific period of time in yeah. which they used the bible to land on that doctrine the problem with that though is we're taking scripture in little snippets as opposed to reading it in bigger portions what i want to do is i want to encourage us to read scripture in bigger portions <coughs> i want to pull us real quick into the luke Bit just just a little deeper yeah. before we go to the yeah. First Thessalonians. Let's is that okay? Oh, so what I want to encourage you is that in Luke, the entire conversation is as Jesus is leading up to the temple from Luke seventeen to Luke twenty one. So in Luke seventeen, he has this conversation around being taken. <coughs> Where would they be taken, Lord? And he says, you know, where the, where dead bodies the the vultures yeah. gather. But if you continue forward, all of a sudden we see uh, we see Palm Sunday. That whole you know in nineteen, they're laying down palm branches, saying Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, expecting again that the Messiah has come to set up his rule and reign there in Jerusalem. And Jesus says this: he 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 weeps over Jerusalem, and he says, "I wish that they would have known what would have brought them peace." Mm. And what we need to understand again is that Jesus is pointing to something that the, the ends of them expecting him overthrowing Rome violently will eventually lead to their downfall. <clears throat> um, and then we get to walk up to chapter 21, and there are some conversations in this entire portion that I want us to understand, there is a warning to people who um, are seeing these signs that like, hey, like run for the mountains. Yeah. Like, like don't stay in Jerusalem and fight. When you hear these rumors, run for the hills. And if we look back in history, 
we understand that in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. We also understand that no stone was left on another, just like Matthew 24 said, because when they lit the temple on fire, gold came down in between the stones and they ripped the walls apart to get to the Hmm. gold. Then what we understand is that um, Rome came in, the Christians fled. One of the Christians that's believed to have fled is John the Revelator. Hmm. So they believe that he was a follower of Jesus in a Jewish context, possibly in Jerusalem, who fled during the takeover mm. of, of Jerusalem. Well, if you know from history, they Rome came into Jerusalem and the Christians fled, but the Jewish people fought them for a little while. And Rome backed off for a couple days and then came in and totally ransacked yeah. it. And what they did was... They gathered at the valley of uh, uh, of Armageddon, Megiddo, which this is going to play into some of what we're going to talk <laughs> about later. But they gathered at the valley of Megiddo before they entered back into Jerusalem uh, for this giant battle and takeover. And then um, what they did was they took with them, they were taken, the, the, the people who were fighting, they took with them some and they threw them into Gehenna, hmm. the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is also <laughs> called the Lake of Fire. Yeah. So there's all these things. If we understand history, <clears throat> if we understand Matthew 24, if we understand Luke 17, and we read it in bigger portions, we understand all these things that Jesus is warning about the destruction of the temple. And hey, flee for the hills because it's not good to be taken. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> reading that in its context is so important, so important. Because you're right, the idea of like, hey, here's a passage about people being taken, boom, rapture. It just it misses it, and it makes so much more sense for Jesus, Jewish Jesus, talking to his Jewish disciples about the destruction of the temple. And um, that, as you said, that was earth-shattering mm-hmm. for them, for the destruction of that. Um, and so when we read this properly in its right place, and what's great about this passage is it has all these parallels that help us see the bigger picture of it, that oh, this this is not about the rapture of the church. This is about get out. <laughs> the destruction of the yep. temple is coming. Um, yeah, yeah. So the next one I want to go to, uh, to in my opinion, is probably the one that gets used the most. Mm. Um, and that's 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4. Which, by the way, I believe, and there, there's different views on this, I believe that 1 Thessalonians 4 was written <clears throat> before the destruction of the temple. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, so 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, let me just read this part to you. Uh, it starts in verse 16. And, and keep this in mind if, you know... We're thinking about rapture. Put that in your head here and, and as we read this through. So it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So this passage right here gets used 
constantly to talk about the rapture. And it's that language there of caught up in the clouds, caught up in the air, that this idea of there's going to be a trumpet sound, Jesus is going to come and he's going to catch up his people. They're going to be caught up in the air. He's going to take them out of here. And, and it makes sense. If you, if you have the rapture already built into your head, um, reading this passage is like, yeah, there it is. It's right there, caught up in the clouds. So here's what I want to do. Because again, context is key, uh, is, is go through this passage with context because uh, Paul is, man, he's talking about something so different right here. And we talked a little bit about it in the last episode, but it's so helpful. So um, if you were to look at the beginning parts of this this chapter here in uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul is uh, addressing this question the Thessalonians have of what's happened with our brothers and sisters who have already died. Um, and we talked about that in the last episode that what's so crazy is in their construct of the gospel, it's not about, hey, when you die, you get to go to heaven and that's the end goal. And it's perfect because these Thessalonians are worried about their brothers and sisters who have died. And so Paul's answer to them is this. And so um, Paul starts it off in verse 13 of, of saying, um, you know, and now dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to your believers who have died. So this passage is already more about the hope of after death. Mm -hmm. So already established in this context is Paul is concerned about answering a question about life after life after death, to use N.T. Wright's terms. And so we're already different from a conversation about, you know, end of the world, rapture and tribulation, all that stuff. We're placed at a different place in the story than what we often yeah. place it <laughs> yeah yep um so then in verse 14 so again these are these are the verses before that chunk i just read to you about caught up in the air uh paul then says this for since we believe that jesus died and was raised to life again we also believe that when jesus returns god will bring back with him the believers who have died mm-hmm. so notice god's movement already in paul's understanding the movement of God in this story is coming here. It's, hey, you know, you believe your brothers and sisters, they've died, but guess what? God is going to bring them back. And so where a rapture theology is us getting out of here and going to God, Paul is already starting this conversation off in First Thessalonians is that God is actually coming to us and he's going to bring back the brothers and sisters who have died and they're going to be resurrected um and then what's even interesting too is verse 15 the verse right before this passage about being caught up in the air paul says this we tell you this directly from the lord we who are still living when the lord's return will not meet him ahead of those who have died Hmm. and so already we're being told that that our meeting of him is not (laughs) going to be before the resurrection right the resurrection is going to happen uh as paul sees uh with those who have died, that's going to happen first. And so already this idea of getting caught up in the air, going to heaven just doesn't really fit here. So then the, the, the verse comes, you know, Hey, the Lord's going to come. There's going to be a shout. And we, um, who are here are going to get caught up in the clouds to meet him. So here's what I want to talk about is what does Paul mean by that? Because if the movement of God in this passage is coming to earth, then Paul says, hey, we're going to be caught up in the air with him. Well, what's happening here? You know, so 
here's where the language that um, you know first century people are using is so important for us to understand. When a king mm-hmm. would come and visit, I was hoping. yes, <laughs> when a king would come and visit its city, um, you know the people who the king ruled and reigned over. What the people would do is they would leave the city, they would go out, they would essentially be caught up with the king, and they would greet him out there. Okay, so Paul is using this idea of like, we will go and we will greet him. We'll be caught up, we're going to go greet him out there. And then what would happen is then you and the king would come back into the city. And so this catching up in the air, this language that Paul is using is the same language for which when a king visits a city, you would exit, you would meet the king, and you would come back. And that also helps when we look at what Paul says is that when we get caught up in the air, the next thing he says is that then we will be with the Lord forever. Well, where have we established where we're going to be forever with God? New earth. Yep. And, and, and that is the movement of the entire Bible, Revelation, the prophets. That is all Paul thinks about is new earth. Yeah. And so if, if the end goal of where we, uh, if, the, if the place in which we are is the end goal of where we are with the Lord forever is new earth, then the event that leads up to this of the catching up in the air isn't going to be a rapture to heaven because that's not the end goal. Um, and so, you know, this, this passage, you know, it's, it's that little language right there that we rip out of its cultural context and we rip it out of the whole point of what Paul's saying is about resurrection of the dead and that God's coming back. There, there's no space for a rapture yeah. in this passage. There's the words not used. The, the, the idea of going to heaven is not used yeah. right here. The passage is about resurrection, about the dead coming back, um, it, it just can't fit in here. Um, and, I, and I think that's important. And, and honestly, I mean, we've kind of covered the two passages that, that, that people can use for the rapture. Yeah, the, um, those are kind of the, the main places. Uh, yeah. You don't even, in Revelation, which everybody, you know, thinks of that as the end times. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't even talk about this at all. You, you, have, to, you have to insert um, an, a a theological construct without drawing out like good hermeneutics. You have to insert it into Matthew 24, yeah. Luke 17, you know, first Thessalonians four. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really have to push the rapture into it and mm-hmm. uh, it just, it doesn't work. And so it, it, those are the two places. And what's crazy is this doctrine is is so prevalent in like Christian American Christianity, yep. um, and it's just we're so you know consumed by it. And there's two passages that potentially are about it, and but when you read them correctly, you know, it's it's not there, you know. And so um, it's interesting that we focus so much on an event um, that's just not explicitly described by the Bible. And fail to uh, spend so much time on the resurrection event that yeah. is so cared about and you know talked about in the Bible. Yeah. It, we've just we've got kind of flip flopped most of the time with the end. 
I want to talk a little bit, just briefly, about the history of the rapture. Please do. It's, uh, it's so fascinating. Yeah. So that it, so I, I, for a while, would make the statement like, oh, we don't really see anything about a pre-tribulation rapture until 1835. And I was actually corrected on that. Um, and uh, somebody's like, no, check out Polycarp. And so I, so I was like, man, okay. So I checked out Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was born somewhere around 70 AD, probably 69 AD is what most people think. Um, and um, he became eventually the Bishop of Smyrna, which is in the Asian Minor region. It's actually one of the seven churches that John the Revelator writes to. And so... Um, if, and this is an if and I do, if you land the timing of Revelation being written in the later 90s AD, then Polycarp would have been the bishop of that time. Mm. And so Polycarp, because of fear under Emperor Domitian um, of a tribulation, a, a new, because Nero persecuted Christians, but then when Domitian took over, there was this fear of this, like, man, he's he's going to do it again differently or in a different way. There was this fear. And Polycarp started writing about how Christians will be caught up using First Thessalonians 4 before this tribulation. And so him, some of his followers, some of the people that he influenced carried on this idea. And it was kind of present within probably the second century, but kind of fizzled out after that. Before I move on to kind of how it's played out in America, I want to read um, Revelation 2 to you. Now, Revelation 2 is is the start of the seven letters to the uh, to, to the seven churches. And John actually begins writing to the church in Smyrna. And here's what he says. He says this, do not, uh, verse, verse 10 of chapter 2, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you and uh, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So it's almost like because of this this teaching, Polycarp is teaching of this fear of a tribulation under Domitian that John the Revelator is writing to Polycarp and saying, hey, man, don't fear persecution. Don't fear death. Because you will receive a victor's crown. And in Revelation, this idea of being willing to put, be put to death during a time of tribulation it actually brings this conquering victory. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. As we continue on through history, though, um, let's talk specifically about America. Because we talked about, and Zach talked about, how America is a place where um, you see this idea of this pre-tribulation rapture um, more present here, and, and it's unique to America. What happened is in the 1800s, there was this view of the end times that looked like this. It was called postmillennialism. And postmillennialism basically says that, hey, if we could create a thousand years of peace 
then Jesus will come back. Like it's like it's on us to bring the kingdom. And that was very present in the 1800s. Now, here's what what happened in the 1800s. In the late 1800s, the Civil War kicked up. Then in the early 1900s, the World World War One, yeah. and then a little bit later, World War Two, and so this dream of this hope of us we're going to create a thousand years of peace so Christ could return, it got shattered. Yeah, because war, war, and a war. So if you rewind back 1835, there was this man by the name of John Darby who came on the scene. John Darby came from the Plymouth Brethren in Scotland. And the Plymouth Brethren, he was one of the leaders of. He comes over and he starts influencing a guy by the name of D.L. Moody. On top of that, he begins to influence a man by the name of Schofield. And so many of you and I was raised um, where like the best Bible to have is the Schofield Hmm. reference Bible, this guy's Bible. And even if you open to, to things like Luke 17, like Schofield actually said, Jesus is talking about the rapture here. Yeah, like it, he actually says it. Um, John Darby influenced D.L. Moody and Schofield. And what their main deal that they did was they resourced Bible publication and works to rural, uneducated pastors in the Midwest. So there's a lot of little churches in the Midwest. I, I went to a Bible college that the whole mindset of the Bible college was to train pastors from these little towns in the Midwest and send them back to be well-trained in the Bible. And so D.L. Moody had this vision. And so Moody Bible Institute and Moody Press would begin to resource these rural pastors and give them some education. So they began to teach these rural pastors this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. And it caught on like wildfire right after the, the, the first uh, world war. Because all of a sudden, hey, like we couldn't control peace, but there's hope. We could all get out of here and go to heaven. And that's where it kicked up, and that's where it was fueled from. Soon after, you see them saying, like, well, this isn't what the academic institutions are teaching, so let's make one. And that's when Dallas Theological Seminary popped up and many other colleges, like the one I attended and you attended. um, That's where it came from. Yeah. So it's interesting, like, a lot of our our understanding of the end and the rapture is – is so influenced by history, mm-hmm. uh, so influenced by other pieces of literature outside the Bible, uh, that when we actually do spend time reading the Bible, and if we push those things away, we get a better picture of it. The history part is so interesting because if you do, if, if you were to go outside of American Christianity um, and start talking to other believers about the rapture, you may get some dumb looks because <laughs> it's it's so contained to our world um, and it's so deeply rooted by, you know... Well, and what was happening here. Yeah it, yeah, it was all so built upon what was happening here and this change of mindset of, hey, we're going to make this world great, you know, we're going to move it forward. Oh, all these wars just happened. Humans aren't that great. And so... God's going to have to get us out of here. It's yeah. an insane shift from like, uh, you know, we're going to fix it all to escapism. Uh, yep. We've got to escape it all. We've got to get out of this world. We can't fix it. And so um, a part of that is, 
it, all of that has just really influenced the way that we understand the end and understand yeah. the rapture. So, um, I think we've beaten up on the rapture okay. pretty well. Yeah, I'm, um. I'm like at a point where I'm like, but I feel like it's been helpful because not a lot yeah. of people get a really like in depth view yeah. of of um, of this, and it's it's not taught yeah. in churches no. um, very well. And so I, I still think it's helpful. But yeah, yeah I, I want to shift gears a little bit to some of the other details yeah. of the means to the end. Yeah, for sure. And, and again, because, you know, there, I think there's a lot that can be said about the rapture. And uh, if this is, you know, category blowing for you and um, a little uncomfortable, go, go read those passages we said. Mm-hmm. Keep them in the context that we've kind of suggested. Um I think you'll you'll see a fresh understanding of those those passages and um, yeah the rapture again I just want to end with this for the rapture part I just find it so interesting that like in many churches where very specific doctrines aren't taught on mm-hmm. like from the pulpit but the rapture is like that always yeah. is so weird to me is like like some of the most important doctrine we could be talking about doesn't get talked about in big church popular church but this one somehow does you know it's it's so weird so all right um so with the rapture you know it it, it's this idea of escapism and we've said hey that's not the end goal the end goal is god coming here not us going somewhere Mm -hmm. else and so as we continue to think about the end um you know the, the rapture in its in its own view kind of brings about chaos and destruction Mm -hmm. right you know people disappearing from planes and stuff like that. Um, and that fits into the way in which a lot of people talk about the end is it's going to be destruction and war and, and Armageddon and battles and, um, and violence. And so I, the next question we want to ask is, does the way in which God brings about restoration, is there going to be a lead up of intense violence? Is our hope that there's going to be a lot of violence hmm. and we should be really glad when there's a lot of violence because that means Jesus is going to come back. Are there signs we can see about yeah. Jesus coming back? Are there, oh, this is a clear sign that, you know, this crazy thing happened in the Middle East and Jesus mm-hmm. is probably going to come back. So those, those are the next questions we kind of want to explore for the rest of the episode. Yeah. So the, um, if you understand the timeline <clears throat> of kind of the construct we've been talking about that, that kind of holds to the rapture. Yeah. With the very next thing after the rapture, and, and there's different views where they might place the rapture in different places of this, but the very next thing is a seven-year tribulation. Yeah. And I, I'm just going to make one point real quick, and I'm going to say that that there is no place in Scripture outside of Daniel 9 that alludes to a seven-year tribulation. Yeah, and allude is is probably giving it too much. Credit. Yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> so D- Daniel 9, uh, if you read it, there's a couple things. No matter what view you actually hold of the interpretation of Daniel 9, there's a hole. And the yeah. hole is, hey, there, there's this weird gap before the seventh. Yeah. What do we do with that gap? And so that's something that we can wrestle with a little bit. Some some people say that, oh, that's the church age before the rapture. I don't see that. Yeah. Um, I've, I actually heard a fascinating deal. I'm attempting to unpack more, and maybe it'll make for another conversation. But how N.T. Wright is landing genealogies of, of, mm. of generations to 
to that and how he lands it with the year of jubilee of Jesus showing up. Mm. Um, but again, it's Daniel 9 is like not super clear. And so the only passage that I've heard every pastor, teacher, theologian ever attempt to land a seven-year tribulation is Daniel 9. And it's really tough. Yeah. It's really t- You have to read into it. Yeah. Um, as opposed to really working the text responsibly to get there. Yeah, it's interesting with with Revelation because um, <clears throat> I think you you might assume that oh, Revelation probably says something about that. Nope. Revelation like probably says something rapture. about the rapture. Nope. It, it nope. doesn't. It doesn't say anything about seven years and and with the tribulation. You know, when when Jesus speaks about tribulation, he's not. He never says seven. He doesn't yep. give a number, um, and it's more closely tied to what we talked about with the destruction of yep. the temple and just the general like um, framework for Jewish understanding. So if you think about his disciples who yep. have this Jewish worldview, Hey, the Messiah is here. The kingdom's coming, right? The world's going to be restored. You know, we've, we found the Messiah. We're falling after him. We're so excited for, for what's going to happen. I mean, you've got the disciples who are yep. like, are we going to sit on your right and left yeah, when, yeah, when yeah, the yeah. kingdom comes, you know? And so they have that understanding that, the end of the world is about to happen and the new, like, the age to come is yep. about to happen with Jesus. And so Jesus has to kind of work in their mindset of, well, hey, there's going to be tribulation. There's yep. going to be persecution in your in your time right now. Yep. Um, it's not going to be instantly perfect. Uh, there's hope. There's new creation right now. Yep. Resurrection. Things are working in this time right now, but it's not going to be as perfect as you think there's going to be persecution so jesus conversations around tribulation are more in that category and in the category of temple rather than these seven years that we somehow rip from daniel add to great tribulation it's a lot of hoops to jump through to get to that so let's talk a little bit about revelation and persecution then Um, so persecution is something that um under emperor nero um, Emperor Nero oversaw just mass slaughterings of Christians, including the, some of the disciples under yeah. his reign. Um, and un, under Nero's reign, I mean, he would do horrible things. He would light his garden by lighting the bodies of Christians on fire, mm. and he would have dinner guests over. He would put Christians in the middle of the Colosseum, and they'd be ripped apart by lions and animals, and they'd sit there and they'd they'd eat and and they'd laugh about it. Um, that was some of the persecution, and then again Domitian winds up on the scene. So. Some of the views of Revelation, depending on where you're at, some believe that Revelation was written before 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. I don't believe that. I believe that even though it is pointing towards current stuff happening there, I believe it was actually written by John the Revelator who was in exile, (coughs) who most likely fleed Jerusalem during the destruction of the temple. And he is writing... Uh, uh, the seven to the seven churches under Emperor Domitian about the possible tribulation that is to come, the persecution that is to come under Domitian. Not some future far off, yeah. distant future, but I believe it was currently what was happening at that time. Now let's talk a little bit about some things. First of all, um, Romans tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Now that confession in first century to say Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar 
is not. And in order for anybody to trade and sell goods, they needed to declare Caesar as Lord, burn incense and worship Caesar as God. And Christians refused to do so. And this brings us into a lot of the conversation that we'll see through Revelation. And what we see in Revelation is this revelation of Christ and his people and how they act in these moments that ultimately brings victory, even if they are put to death. Yeah. It takes a, a reframing for Revelation because <clears throat> for, for, for growing up, I, I, I saw Revelation as this uh, description of of here's you know play by play yep. chronological order here's what's going to happen at the end John yep. John's given this vision when he's on Patmos and you know here's what here's what's going to happen at the end and you know there's going to be this antichrist and these two witnesses and the beast <laughs> and the the you know the mark of the beast and, yes. and so for 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 one view of Revelation is that's what it's all about yeah um, but. Our conversation is actually that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Why? Why would John address a letter to seven churches of his time who are facing persecution and say, "Hey, you know, I'm, I know you're going through all this persecution, but in about two thousand years, <laughs> um, there's going to be these events in the Middle East, and there's going to be this character, and God's going to like." How is that encouraging to, to them yeah. in the moment? Right? Why, why would that be something they, that? John was like, they need to hear this, you know, this revelation I've been given, they need to hear yep. this of these future. Why would it matter to yeah. them? And so it, was, takes a, it takes understanding too. And to go off what you said is we have to, and, and this goes back to our kingdom episode. So listen to that if you haven't. But our framework of understanding Jesus as king mm-hmm. is so important to the way we read Revelation. Like you said, the confession of Jesus is Lord isn't about personal Lord and Savior. Oh, when you go to heaven, my soul is going to fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not. It's declaring who's king. It's declaring who's king. In, yeah. in a world where God wanted all humans to rule and reign, and now we've given that rule and reign to evil, we've given it to nations, we've given it to individual humans and not all ourselves. Um, in that world where there's misuse of power, where there's evil and destruction, to say that Jesus is king in a Roman world is yep. that's what gets them killed. And we talked about that in our last in our kingdom episode. Yep. That's what gets you killed. Uh, is to say Jesus is king, Jesus is president, Jesus yep, is Lord. Butts up against Caesar. And that's ultimately what led to Jesus' death. Yeah. That's... Was because you know, he was claiming to be king and they put him to death not because he was like, Oh, I'm God. Like nobody would have cared. They put him to death because his claim of being king pinned him up against yeah. Caesar. And that's why the religious leaders are like, We have no other, you know, um <clears throat> king but Caesar. You know, yeah. there's no other but Caesar. Um I, I want to talk a little bit about because I, I I and I'm actually still in process about some of Revelation because because yeah. there was a while where I'm like yeah Revelation up to this point a certain point in Revelation it, it plays into like and that was like Jesus is gonna come back and then he's gonna like kick butt and yeah. like you know and and slowly over time even that perspective has started. To shift, and so I'm yeah. actually currently in process of trying to figure some of that, like how much of it has happened to the people he was currently writing to, and how much of it will yeah. happen in the future, um, with the hope that we're talking about. 
one of the things that I, that we see and I, I want us to understand about Revelation is is that it is a genre of Jewish literature called apocalyptic literature, which, to be honest with you, neither Zach or I will ever be like scholars of this type of writing. As a matter (laughs) of fact, super hard to understand. However, in our understanding of, of, as we've read and as we've studied, there there are moments in the text where we're like, oh, how apocalyptic literature works. There's something else going on in there than a literal interpretation might bring us to. One of those is that the main theme, and I'll say this again, the main theme, the main theme is that the ways of the world and the kingdoms of the world do things uh, and and, and, uh, violently and they do things that, that create chaos and it uses the terms beasts and these like and, and and what 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 revelation does is it sets up a slain lamb as the main theme this little slain lamb that <coughs> conquers these beasts and it's by his way and his people that true conquering comes yeah it if you want to understand the the power of revelation and I've heard this illustration used before I think it's so good it's to think about a political cartoon Mm-hmm. You know, you and I can see a cartoon that has an elephant and a donkey, and we know what those symbols mean, and, and they they contain a whole world to them. And that's Revelation. Is it's 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 a political cartoon. It's political language of kingdoms, and and it's language that we have to work really hard yeah. to understand. It's what's tough we, about it, and the idea of the of of what David is talking about about this is about this, you know this way of the world, the way of Babylon, of, mm. of kingdoms of violence and, you know, conquering and, and oppression. And then you've got the, the believers who follow the way of the lamb. Mm-hmm. And you've got just this like beast and dragons and then like <laughs> the slain lamb. And all throughout John is taking our expectations of what victory looks like and flipping them. Yep. You would think that, to be victorious, the Christians need to go to battle and they yep. need to defeat the armies through violence and, and overtake them and be victorious. And all throughout, John takes that and flips yep. it because the victory is found in the Lamb. Yep. And so this is, you know, the, the purpose of Revelation is to encourage these Christians who are being persecuted by Rome, by this new version of Babylon, and, and, and to say, hey, look, your victory is not found in you taking up the sword. Yeah. Your victory uh, is going to look so different because this is how God operates. Yep. He, it, it, you go back to Jesus. How does Jesus defeat evil? He dies on a cross. Yeah. Like that's, our, that's our hope all the time when we talk about Jesus is that he wasn't that ruling king. And I think what's hard, and I'm kind of going on a rant right here, but what's hard <laughs> with Revelation is it's like we've got Jesus in the Gospels where where we're always talking, yeah, he was blowing their expectations about what a king should look like. You know, he comes in on a donkey. He's born from this different family. The, the people want to make Jesus a king, and he doesn't want to be that kind of king. And he becomes victorious through death on a cross, and it's about persecution and sacrifice. And then we get to Revelation, and we see some of the violent language, and we think, oh, and now Jesus is all of a sudden this violent warrior king. Like, yeah. What? What a two-faced guy. You know, well, that's how we view Jesus. One of the things I kind of debunked in my last blog post was 
it's a mindset of like he came as a lamb first, but he's gonna come back like a lion, yeah. you know. And um, we have that mindset of oh, the warrior Jesus is gonna show up with fire in his eyes because that's how we read it literally, and that's yeah. not really what's happening. Yeah, we we have to read Revelation with this viewpoint that what John is doing so brilliantly is taking expectations and flipping them yep. and showing his his readers who are being persecuted that your victory comes through suffering. Your victory comes through the death of this mm-hmm. lamb. You know, like it's going to look differently. And so when we try to use revelation to talk about God's people and war and violence and there's going to be, you know, us joining Jesus in this great battle in Armageddon and defeating the, you know, the powers of this world, that would be completely missing what John is trying to say yeah. is actually your victory comes very differently. I mean, you look at Revelation 5 and you see that there's this yeah, uh, elder that says, you know, they're talking about who's worthy to open the scroll. And he says, the lion of Judah, which points back to the mess- messianic like symbolism that, to be honest with you, isn't very fleshed out in scripture, like at all, but we <laughs> act like it is. But it's this idea of this beast, you know, this this beast is, is willing to take on the beast of the world. The root of David, who David was this warrior king. He is worthy. And, and, and so there's this expectation that this lion will show up and all of a sudden it's a lamb. Yeah. It's, it's like there's this expectation. They, they hear that this, um, and John's like, then I saw a lamb, and the lamb appeared to be slain. It's like this little lamb, and 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 he says that this lamb was worthy and to, of all glory and honor, and yeah. and he was worthy to open the scroll. It, it wasn't what they expected. It's it's like what you said. They took the expectations and they flipped it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the importance of of Revelation is that expectation flip. Of that, that God is one who deals with things differently. Mm-hmm. You know, the cross, um, the way in which God brings victory it, it is not the way in which we think of winning a battle and, and mm-hmm. overpowering your enemy. Uh, you think about Jesus and the way in which he dies on a cross. And in the way in which you talk, that brings victory. Yep. And that same Jesus doesn't change. Yeah. It's not as though, hey, that plan worked really well that first time to defeat, you know, sin and bring forgiveness and all that. But this time we've got to do things a little differently. You know, it just, it just doesn't make sense with God. God is creative. He's going to do things differently. And it's that same way of being willing to lay down your life and follow the way of the Lamb that actually we see in Revelation conquers these beasts. It's crazy. The, the main theme of Revelation is this slain lamb, his way, his people. Let me just point a couple of them here. Um, Revelation 12, it talks about this dragon. And this dragon, it says, is the serpent. And it was cast down to earth. It's the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. Um, the, the understanding is it's the Satan, the accuser. And, and, and it says that this dragon is defeated by what? The blood of... Of the Lamb. And the word of our testimony. And it even says, don't fear even your own life. Don't fear giving up your own life because that is the way of the Lamb. 
And then it's the same dragon that gives power to these beasts in, in chapter 13. And these beasts we see, the first one is about violence and even persecuting believers. And then the second one is about greed and wealth. And this beast, the mark of this beast is 666, which that's what we all fear now is this mark of the beast. You know, we're we're continually watching the news to see what sort of chips they're putting yeah. in people's hands or on their foreheads. Everybody was scared of credit cards when they first came out and stuff. But, but that's not what it's talking about. It's that the way of this beast, the way of Babylon is greed. Yeah. And if you understand uh, the Jewish alphabet and how it plays out, there's this, there's uh, numbers that are attached to each one of these letters and names. And if you take Emperor Nero and you put the n- numeric um, numbers to it in its number system, it actually comes out 666. And then lastly, we get to the Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, which there's these battles and they like repeat themselves, it seems like, from chapter 17 through 20. And um, as some people say they're two different battles, which could be. Um, but what's interesting is it's the slain lamb that defeats mm. in these battles. Um, chapter 19 actually shows Jesus showing up in a white robe that's dipped in blood even before the battle starts. And it's this symbol that... It's his blood that defeats at this battle. And I believe, and where I'm beginning to lean, is that this battle of Armageddon or Megiddo, it points back to where the Romans hung out before they took over Jerusalem. And it's saying, hey, because of the blood of the Lamb, we've already won. Yeah. So I think what we're trying to say here with Revelation um, is it looks a lot different. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, hey, here's this book of chronological things that need to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, wait for these wars and these battles and get excited about them because Jesus is coming back. That's, that's just not the point of Revelation. It's to continually point us to the Lamb, to yeah. continually point us to Jesus and his victory. And the way in which his people operate in this world even now mm-hmm. is that our suffering, our persecution fits into a bigger picture, which is why Jesus can say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you are persecuted yep. for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. Yeah, And that fits into a revelation is that blessed are you when you face this persecution, you're going to be victorious. These people who think they're going to inherit the world through violence mm. and through destruction and oppression, they're not going to be the ones who inherit it you are and it's this complete flipping of of it all is that that god's people aren't ones who participate in the violence who who hope for violence they're Mm. the ones who are peacemakers which is again sermon on the mount (laughs) blessed are you who work for peace you know um and so i think the implications of all this is really important because we can sit here and and talk about how to interpret revelation and rapture as a doctrine um and those are important but what what matters is as how this plays out to our life mm-hmm. and then that's why you and i have felt so um uh felt so passionate about this conversation is because we've seen the implications of when you live in a christian worldview uh that doesn't value this earth uh that desires to escape to get out of here yep. 
that sees the way in which God is going to solve issues is through violence. Yeah. Uh, that we should hope for these violent things to happen because it means Jesus will come back. Yep. That even for some that we get to participate in that, that we're going yeah. to join Jesus in this battle of Armageddon and take up the sword and win victory over the evil. Uh, when that's our, our hope and that's the way into which we get to that hope, it, it affects our heart. It affects the way we live into this world. Um, it affects the way in which we think of participating in peace for this world that if we look at you know, you know tragic events happening in the middle east and almost root for them or be happy about them yeah. because it might be pointing back to jesus rather than lamenting over it and, mm. and asking for peace to come on this world um it also affects the way in which we participate in politics and environment and uh, the care of the people around us if all we're trying to do is get people off this rock then we don't value the things that happen yeah. on this rock or what's going to happen with this rock. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's such a reshaping of our practical life here and now by the way in which we think about the end. Um, and two, with Revelation, if we just think of it as this violent manifesto of what Jesus is going to do, um, we miss out on the seriousness of Jesus saying, love your enemies, yeah. turn the other cheek. And, and we miss out on the sacrifice that Jesus brings, that he is, he is the God who defeats evil by dying. Yeah. You know, he's not the, the God who defeats evil by flexing a muscle, by being a little bit stronger. Yeah. Um, and so you and I have to have a bigger view that our persecution and our suffering has a point to it, yeah. that it fits into a mold and that we're actually victorious in that the victory of Jesus is not a lion, it's a slain lamb that plays out into so much in the way we view um, us being victorious, the way in which we win in this world, uh, the way in which we hope for what God is going to do is it's, it's about peace. It's yeah. about restoration. So. Yeah. I, I, I love Luke 10. There's this passage that if you don't ha- understand the gospel of this kingdom and Jesus as the prince of peace, you, you could tend to look at this passage and be like, I don't even know what the heck that's talking about. Yeah. But it's this idea of searching for people of peace. And I'll be and it says, hey, if you don't find them, just just you know, kick, kick them off and go to the next town. <laughs> my, my guess is that many like believers, are not people of peace. Mm. They're people who desire violence, who watch the news looking at the things in the Middle East being like, yes, time is coming. And that does not play into the future hope that, 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 that God has for this earth and even the teachings and way of Jesus, the slain lamb. You use the term inaugurated eschatology yeah. in when we talked about the kingdom a couple episodes ago. This idea that what's going to happen in the end is breaking through even now. And wh- what I want to ask that this formational question is, is are, are the means of us getting there, the means in which we as followers of Jesus are, are envisioning the will of God as we pray and as we live his kingdom come his will be done on earth as it is heaven it, it are those things playing into a future goal of hope mm. and peace are we overcoming evil with good are we neutralizing violence and evil through sacrifice mm. 
and love. That is the vision of the way of the slain lamb of Jesus. That is the way that conquering happens. It's taking Jesus seriously. It's yeah. it's not just thinking of his Sermon on the Mount or his teachings as a pipe dream. Yeah. Uh, or, hey, that's what it's going to be like one day. It's it's I, live into that right now. I've had people when I bring up the Sermon on the Mount and I talk about peace or something, they're like, that's impractical. That's not realistic. <laughs> We're humans. I'm like, but that's the beauty of the gospel. Yeah, is you, you know? are a new creation. Yeah. The like, Spirit is working through you right now to transform that. And if, if you're going to participate in this following after Jesus, it's so much more than saying the password to get into heaven yeah. and, and just waiting and hoping to get more people on board. It's you are living into the future right now. Yeah. The way in which you participate in your day-to-day life, if you live into the Sermon on the Mount, if you live into Jesus' teaching, you are living radically different from this world. Yeah. That's for sure. And the and you are doing that to show the vision of the future, and it's it's going to be hard, and it's yeah. going to be different, um, but that's what Jesus does. Is he's transforming us right now to look like the people we're going to become in the new creation, and we get to do that right now. And we don't um, we don't look like the world. We don't yeah. part, we don't um, participate in the ways we think about victory or, or think about um, winning or whatever that looks like. We are people of peace. We're people who turn the other cheek. And, and those teachings of Jesus play out right now in our, in our present time. Yep. Hey, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, hopefully this has challenged you. Uh, feel free in comments or find us on social media and write us. You can continue the conversation with us. There'll be um, Zach wrote a great series on the rapture. Um, there'll be those in the notes along with some other videos and some other fun stuff. Hey, and here's what I want to say. Um, right now, Zach and I are in the Phoenix area of Arizona, as many of you know. This is our last episode side by side, person to person in the same room. He is moving to Southern California. I'm moving to Modesto. So we're going to have to continue some of these podcasts and figure out how to do them, you know, (laughs) uh, using Skype or some other means. But thank you so much uh, for uh, leaning into these as much as you have and kind of um, uh, kind of wrestling with us. Our our goal is to help people think well about the things of God. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. It's it's been so fun, especially this episode. Yeah, th- this is one that we have been wanting <laughs> to do for a while. Thank you so much. This is my father's world. The birds that carols race. The morning light, the lily white to clear the maker's praise. This is my father's world He shines in all that's fair In the rustling grass I hear him past He speaks to me everywhere This is my father's world That though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler. This is my father's world. The battle is not done.
satisfied and earth and heaven be Thank you for listening today. We want to thank Reawaken Hymns for sharing This Is My Father's World with us today. You could find out more at www.reawakenhymns.com. Thank you so much for listening.